0: The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us and wherever you are, we hope you're well. Last week, we spoke to our journalists in lockdown due to the coronavirus, COVID-19. This week, we talk about the effects of the lockdown and quarantining on art communities. We hear about the support package for people working in the visual arts in Germany. We discuss the precarious position of artists in the UK and what can be done. And we talk about galleries in New York and a petition for grants and other measures to support the vulnerable art community after the closure of galleries across the world's biggest art centre. And we also have the latest in our new series in which we focus on works behind the doors of museums that have closed due to the coronavirus. This week with the curator Zoe Whitley, who's the new director of the Chisholm Gallery in London. Before we begin, just a reminder that you can sign up for our free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and you'll find the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Now, this week on our website, five of our writers compiled a wide-ranging report into grants and loans available to art workers in the UK, the US, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, France and Italy. The report's been constantly updated, but it's made clear that Germany had acted quickly to address the dire situation in which many art workers find themselves. Catherine Hickley is our correspondent based in Germany, and I spoke to her about the initiatives and the attitude to culture in Germany amid the coronavirus crisis. Catherine, before we get into the specifics of the offer available to freelancers and self-employed people, can you... give us a flavour of the kind of funding mechanisms there are in Germany, particularly because of the, you know, that you have a state system, but there's also a strongly federal system, right?
1: That's right. So the 16 states have mostly come up with their own packages on top of this enormous federal package. So the German government has pledged 550 billion euros in public guarantees for companies so that they can get loans and so on. And there's another €750 billion euros of additional measures. So it's an enormous public effort, a huge package.
0: And then and then on top of that, individual, individual uh, regions are then offering additions to that?
1: That's right, yes. So Berlin has come up with a package that includes... Funding for the self-employed, so has Hamburg, so have many others. And there is a focus here on the self-employed and small companies because these are obviously the backbone of any economy. And the last thing you want when people are, in general, actually structurally solid is a whole wave of insolvencies just because of temporary liquidity caused by a lack of income.
0: Right. Was the self-employed package in Germany, you know, the package for um, self-employed freelancers, etc., announced in, in tandem with that for employees people on people being paid by companies
1: it was actually yes it was announced at the same time the whole lot um and it includes grants so that people can for example apply for a one-off grant of five thousand euros or nine thousand euros from from Berlin and um, the federal government package is not quite through the parliament yet, that's going to happen this week, but it should be ready to take applicants from next week. So it's all pretty swift. And I think most reassuringly is that people knew very early on that it was coming. So um, they they can plan around that.
0: And, And to what extent has culture, have artists been at the heart of the discussion? Because certainly from a British point of view, yes, we as a community are talking about it, but in terms of government announcements, it's been very much dealing with the self-employed as a kind of amorphous mass. Has culture actually been mentioned on a sort of, by politicians?
1: It has. I mean, the culture minister has said, that she said actually that, um, especially at this moment, artists aren't just indispensable, they're vital. So that's a direct quote from her. So I think there's a sort of, general acknowledgement that culture is really system relevant that we need it especially in dark times and that I think might be quite surprising to people in the UK or the US where it's much more difficult to get recognition uh, for the needs of the the arts world but then that's generally the case that in Germany generally culture is very heavily supported by public funds by the government. Um, And at a time like this, in a a time of this kind of panic, I think we really see how different societies value their artists.
0: Now, of course, with that federal system, you do have different art centres. Berlin is the one that we would automatically think of. What's the, the government there doing for artists?
1: Well, Berlin, it's particularly... Extreme case, of course, because there are so many artists and people in the the culture world generally living in the city. Um, And if you think of all the dancers, singers, musicians, as well, of course, as the visual artists and performance artists and all these people who can't work at the moment, it's a massive knock to the economy. Applicants can ask for grants or loans in order to make sure that they can get through the next few months and there's a general realisation that it's a threat to the economy as a whole if artists can't work
0: Yeah and uh, you know um, are you getting a sense from Uh, People in Berlin, for instance, that that they are calm about this, that they they do feel that they are being listened to and they will get support. You know, it's it's one thing for governments to make statements, of course, and quite another thing for um, this being delivered to people and people being able to pay rents on studios and all that side of it.
1: At the moment, I feel there's quite a lot of calmness. The government, particularly Monica as the culture minister, minister, has been extremely reassuring, saying things like, we're not going to leave you in the lurch. We understand the desperation um, repeatedly. And she's been very much in the public eye on, on, on radio, lots of tweets, lots of um, press statements coming out of her office and so on. So I think people feel that they haven't been forgotten. Of course, if it doesn't all work quite as smoothly as has been promised and applications seem to go nowhere or take a long time to be dealt with, then it might be a different story. So I think that's something we'd have to come back to in a week or two.
0: To what extent is there a sort of private sort of foundation based funding system in Germany? Are there, um, as there are in the UK and US, you know, bodies set up to fund, for instance, things like conservation and another kind of artwork which goes on behind the scenes at museums, for instance?
1: There have been a couple of private initiatives. The Ernst von Siemens Art Foundation, for example, has offered grants of up to 25,000 euros to ensure that restorers and curators and academics, people writing catalogues or working on paintings, will get work so that museums can apply for that money um, for restorers and academics to take on specific tasks and has made very clear that these shouldn't be tasks that the museums were already planning they should be new tasks in order to make sure that there's additional work so there are a few private initiatives like this but I mean it's going to be at least 99 percent state operated in Germany because that is the way that the economy works here and the arts world works here.
0: And what about commercial galleries? Because obviously we know that there's a there's a sort of thriving gallery system in 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 Berlin. Um, are, do you, how, to what extent are they struggling? To what extent are they um, in a position to take advantage of um, these kind of uh, emergency measures?
1: Well, there are a whole load of emergency measures that they can take advantage of. It's not just the initial one-off grants from Berlin and from the German government. They can also defer tax payments, they can defer social security payments for employees and there are various other measures that have taken place like such as landlords are not allowed to throw um, self-employed or small companies out of their accommodation if they can't pay the rent at the moment. So there's a whole load of protective measures in place that will help galleries to weather the next few weeks. Um, whether or not some of them will suffer and some of them will fall by the wayside as a result is a bit difficult to say at this point I think that would take much longer and we'll have to see how things develop
0: and one thing that was intriguing in your piece uh, on the theartnewspaper.com was this question of um, compensation from the health department or the health office of the German government for some people can you explain how that works?
1: Yes, that means that if you're a performance artist or, for example, musicians as well, or uh, dancers who have suffered cancellations because of the coronavirus, so you lose money because something that you were planning, you know, an, a scheduled event has been cancelled uh, because of all the social distancing rules, you can claim compensation from your local health office for that.
0: And lastly, m- museums. I mean, obviously. Um... The Humboldt Forum has been on so many people's minds for so long, and it was due to open this year. Um, have you got any sense of, on the one hand, how concerned museums are about their futures, and especially about the Humboldt Forum? About you know what are they saying about the future? Um, are they, how to how to what extent are they postponing their opening? Uh,
1: that we haven't heard yet, but I'm sure it will be postponed. Um, I think that was probably. On the cards anyway, before all of this, Uh, lots of other postponements have taken place. I'm sure you saw in Oster as well that the new Albertina Modern Museum couldn't open at the scheduled time. Um, The Jewish Museum in Berlin is also planning a grand new opening that was to happen in May with a new permanent exhibition and a new children's museum, and that can't happen now, of course. It's all going to be pushed back. But I think we can be fairly confident that the museums in Germany, which are mostly public-funded in any case, will have government funding at some point to help them through this.
0: Right. And, you know, again, that's 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 different from the UK because we there's been a push in the UK for a greater uh, sort of percentage of private funding to help museums uh, uh, develop their programmes, etc. So in in Germany, it is still very state funded and you feel confident that that because of that system, they'll be well looked after.
1: I think so. Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I've been reading as well in in the New York Times, for example, that. American museums are very, very worried about their huge losses of shortfalls of income from admissions tickets and so on. Um, And that the government is not very willing to make up the difference because there's no tradition of public funding for museums in the same way that there is in Germany. Uh, In Germany, it's really part of the state infrastructure, most museums. Um, There are some private museums, but they are really the exception. So, It's unimaginable that the government would allow them to fail as a result of this crisis.
0: OK, well, Catherine, thanks so much for coming on and um, uh, keep us posted.
1: I will. Thank you, Ben.
0: Now for the second in our new series, Lonely Works, in which we turn the spotlight onto artworks in museums that have closed because of the coronavirus. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Zoe Whitley, the new director of the Chisholm Hale in London. She's arrived from the Hayward Gallery, where she was a senior curator. She also curated Kathy Wilkes' British Pavilion show at the last Venice Biennale. But perhaps her best-known curatorial work was on Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, the show of African-American art that began at Tate Modern in 2017 and travelled to various venues in the US, which she curated alongside Mark Godfrey. Zoe's chosen a work by Alma Thomas in the Smithsonian American Art Museum. And you can see the work as we discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. So Zoe, tell me about this work. Why did you choose it?
2: Well, it actually continues uh, other art newspaper conversations that we've been having. So um, (laughs) I was recently profiled in a brush with. Thanks very much. And I was asked uh, which painting I'd want to live with. And I think there's something about working in public institutions that um, even though I don't feel that way about clothes and shoes, I always want more, um, I don't tend to think about artworks as things I want to possess. And yet, um, as soon as that question was asked, there was one painting that immediately I could see super clearly in my head as something I could easily... Um, live with and want to look at all the time because it just brings me a lot of joy. Um, And it's a painting called Wind and Crepe Myrtle Concerto by um, the Washington, D.C. painter Alma Thomas. Um, I was born in Washington, D.C. My grandmother had a crepe myrtle tree in her back garden and we spent a lot of time outside and exactly these kind of um, the wash of color and these kind of shapes that Alma Thomas created with her brushwork reminded me of completely the way our garden would look, blanketed by um, the small petals off of the crape myrtle tree in the summertime.
0: That's so lovely. The, Alma's such an interesting figure, isn't she? Because, because she was a teacher for most of her life and only really became an artist late in her life and then did achieve quite a lot of success.
2: Well, exactly. I think there, I think this is the thing to think about in terms of the way we understand an arc of success or what counts as success. Um, she studied at Howard University um, with uh, a professor named James Herring, who was very important in teaching um, a whole generation of African-American students um, art and art history. Um, so she was able to study art there and was the first black woman who received um, a Master of Arts degree um, from Columbia University in New York. Um, And then while she was working as a teacher, when she retired from teaching in about 1960, um, she was devoting herself to painting full-time and ended up becoming um, the first African-American woman to have a solo exhibition at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1972.
0: And now she was linked with what's called the Washington Colour School. Um, I'm really interested in the relationship with that, because obviously that was dominated by white male artists and also a certain certain language, a kind of language which we much more associate with sort of staining and also very, very non-objective. How do you see that relationship with the Washington Colour
2: School? I think it was a kind of loose association. I think we were always trying to fit people within these kind of existing histories and to make these neat stories and the stories aren't always as neat or as linear as we would like them to be. And even though Thomas was acquainted with um, people like Gene Davis and Morris Lewis um, and others, I think it's also important that within that history, we can complicate the picture by other like incredibly talented and like virtuosic colorists working in Washington D.C., um, like Sam Gilliam. So there were a range of practices kind of influencing and affecting one another, um, and so that dominant narrative isn't always the only one or the one that I think is the the most interesting.
0: What's remarkable about her style is there's always this sort of mosaic quality to it, which of course you know, you think about it in the context of something like pointillism or post-impressionism. But in that particular moment, it seems to me to be quite a unique uh, language that she developed. In the, in, in, you know, if you think about the, that period that she was working.
2: Well, um, when Mark Godfrey and I were developing um, the exhibition Soul of a Nation, um, one of the works that we were looking at including of Thomas's um, was a work that she'd made right after the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Um, And for most of her career, most of her life, so more than about 20 years, um, she was working um, representationally. And so she made um, an image that put together the... um, a kind of visualization of the scene, of the marchers um, with these placards. And, you know, one argument might be made, um, interestingly enough, that the way she was able to then think about reducing those placards as a kind of a unit um, that she then thinks about and works in many different ways in terms of how she approaches abstraction. Um, But she was also looking at um, other major figures in art history, like um, Matisse. Um, So one of the works that was on view um, in the White House during the Obama presidency um, was one of her paintings called Watusi, which has um, many formal similarities to Matisse's The Snail, which is in uh, Tate Modern's collection. Um, so I think that there are, yeah, lots of interesting ways to think about how she approaches what becomes her signature form of mark making and how that relates to a kind of a wider arc of art history. And then for the purposes of, you know, this conversation and the podcast, thinking about, um, how that's been shared with. The public. And in Washington, D.C., one of the ways that that happens in a really meaningful way is because the Smithsonian institutions um, are free to access. So if you're going to the Smithsonian Museum of American Art or um, the Hirschhorn Museum, um, which has some of the Alma Thomas paintings that um, the Obamas lived with during their time in office. Um, A time I miss very much, Um, then you get this sense of um, how she was able to develop such um, a dynamic and joyous um, visual vocabulary.
0: It is really dynamic and joyous and and also very musical, and obviously there's that key word in the title concerto do Do you know much about how she sort of formulated this kind of musical element of of her response to nature?
2: you know that's a really good question, and I don't because she's um just slightly older generation than um my grandparents. She's somebody who I would have loved to have met and to have actually asked many of those questions too. Um, I know that most of the, the works that she made, um, like works like Mars Dust, um, or Snoopy, um, there's a lot of works that are just meant to be kind of joyous celebrations of human achievement, of the seasons, of all of the aspects of human creativity and ingenuity. Um, that, that make us who we are. And there's something about the complete lack of cynicism in the work um, and this ability to very honestly engage with um, happiness and this kind of wonder about the world that I think is really, really refreshing.
0: And it doesn't really relate to this particular work, but you mentioned there the Snoopy works, for instance. She was, she was obsessed with the moon landings, it seems. And, yeah. And Snoopy, <laughs> Snoopy was this nickname that was given to the, to the vehicle on the moon. Correct. And she sort of adopted that. And, and so she, like you say, this sort of um, delight in human achievement extended to this, to a series of paintings that she made directly responding to that, to that monumental moment in human history.
2: Yes, that's exactly correct. And so I think that um, we so often are wanting to um, overlay, um, and for perfectly legitimate reason most of the time, uh, lots of kind of critical interpretation or a certain amount of philosophical theory or jargon. And actually what's so beautiful about this work and something that I think makes it... um, accessible in the purest sense of the word to everyone is that um, even from the artist's own intention, it was free of that. You know, you have the musicality of the wind um, at a certain time of year. You know, in Washington, D.C. right now, it's cherry blossom season. Um, And thinking about many of the plants that, you know, whether they're native to the area or whether they've just kind of thrived from being there, um, this sense of appreciating um, the world around us and this sense of awe of the the world beyond what we can see um, with something like the moon landing um, is just, yeah, I just keep coming back to this word joyous. I feel like it's an artwork that... Um, means a lot in this time. And so I certainly look forward to um, the museum's reopening because you don't really get the sense of um, Thomas's facility with colour and the beauty of the image from the way you see it online. And I think because there's so many different filters, um, the way you see it online, it also in some cases looks like completely purple or in some places looks completely pink and you don't get the sense of... um, the true palette that she was using but it is a really really stunning painting
0: and and you mentioned the obamas there i mean there was there was also a a really magnificent painting called resurrection that was in the white house uh, while the obamas were there and there were great photos of this painting sort of hanging above a dinner table and um and and it, it exerting an enormous presence, you know, this extraordinary kind of colourful presence in the room. And it it is a massive moment, isn't it? Because she was the first African-American painter, African-American woman painter to feature in in the White House, I believe.
2: Um, Yes, that's my understanding as well. So um, that was probably a moment when um, her name and The significance of her of and the many firsts that she achieved over her career, um, not only throughout her art education, but um, in terms of her institutional recognition, which happened late in life, um, probably really came to the fore because people then start asking questions about um, the work that they see in the White House through Um, press photographs and the circulation of a very different kind of media. But in terms of what that signals, um, in the same way as the selection of, say, Kehinde Wiley to paint um, President Obama's portrait, or Amy Sherald to paint um, Michelle Obama's portrait, um, all of these have um, so much cultural significance in terms of how we think about what it means for our cultural leaders um, and our kind of civic leaders to, to value culture and to value what artists have to say, um, and particularly to um, place value on um, artists that may not be household names, you know, artists that um, have a personal connection to um, to our culture, to um, our way of, of thinking and being in the world. And so that sense of... Um, Demystifying how artists function in society, I think, is is equally important um, because you could have an artwork that functions purely um, as a status symbol. You know, certainly if the president wanted to have um, a Picasso or, you know, a major work by um, someone who was, I suppose, more firmly established in the canon, um, That is within their power to do so, but to be thinking um, very actively about what it means to um, extend the canon, to expand it, what representation means um, and how um, many artists have done that and lived that perhaps kind of quietly and humbly throughout their lives. Um, And I certainly think that Alma Thomas is someone who's a testament to that.
0: Thank you, Zoe. That's fantastic. And I hope you stay well. And thank you for telling us about this wonderful work on the podcast.
2: Oh, thank you so much.
0: You can find out more about this work and Alma Thomas at the Smithsonian American Art Museum website at americanart.si.edu. And I'd urge you, if you have time on lockdown or in self-isolation, to buy The Soul of a Nation catalogue with contributions by Zoe Whitley. Still to come, we talk about the need for emergency measures in galleries in New York and for artists in the UK. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. In the latest on coronavirus and the art world, TFAF came under fire as COVID-19 cases surged among those who attended the fair in Maastricht earlier this month at least 25 positive cases of coronavirus have emerged among exhibitors and visitors to last month's fair, which was shut four days early on the 11th of March, after one exhibitor, an Italian modern art dealer, tested positive for the virus on return to his home country. In other coronavirus-related news, Art Basel has postponed its Basel edition until September and there was tumult at various art colleges. More than 100 MFA students from Yale University's School of Art are calling for partial tuition refunds as they shifted to online classes. Students at the Royal College of Art in London accused the university of putting profit first in its decision to transfer all courses online and make degree shows virtual. And the San Francisco Art Institute has failed to find a partner to ensure its financial survival and is uncertain that can continue operating after graduation in May. And the Museum of Contemporary Art, or MOCA, and the UCLA Hammer Museum, both in Los Angeles, have laid off large numbers of part-time employees in the wake of losses relating to the coronavirus. Tragically, the leading cultural critic and curator Maurice Berger died of complications from the coronavirus early this week in the US. Berger was a key figure in exposing art world prejudice, most famously in his essay Our Art Museum's Racist in Art in America in 1990. He curated solo exhibitions by Adrian Piper and Fred Wilson, among others, and several themed exhibitions, including Revolution of the Eye, Modern Art and the Birth of American Television at the Jewish Museum in New York. Berger was just 63. Another Artwell figure who has died far too soon is Paul Kasmin, the New York art dealer. Kasmin was the son of the London-based art dealer and collector John Kasmin and opened his first gallery in Soho in New York in 1989. He dealt on both the primary and secondary markets, showing major modernist artists including Constantin Brancusi and Lee Krasner, as well as living artists including Bernard Vanet and Judith Bernstein. He died after a long illness, believed to be cancer. He was 60. You can read all these stories and find a wealth of recommendations for art-related materials online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. In these challenging times, it's worth taking a step back and wondering how the art world might look when life returns to normal. Bonham's chief marketing officer, Mark Sands, has been doing just that. In his view, the current situation will accelerate the collective drive towards a digital future, something Bonham's has been embracing over the past 18 months. Bidding and buying is increasingly done via web and mobile, Mark says, so our plan has been to grow our base of online registrants and bidders. And it's not just buying that's been revolutionised by the adoption of digital channels. It's selling too. This year we launched a simple to use digital consignment service on our website designed to let clients do everything online in the one place. It offers another option and more flexibility for consigners globally. To find out more, visit sell.bonhams.com to access this new online selling hub and to seek evaluation online. As regular listeners will know, Bonhams has supported this podcast since the first ever episode. So as we enter a new season, we'd like to say a big thank you to Bonhams from everyone here. Welcome back. Now to New York galleries. Earlier this week, the New York Art Dealers Alliance, or NADA, organised a petition to New York Mayor Bill de Blasio and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, among others, asking for urgent relief for the city's art galleries, artists, and art workers. De Blasio had announced two relief initiatives for small businesses in New York City, whose specific eligibility requirements, the petition argues, restrict many small businesses and, as a result, the networks of labourers they support from qualifying for assistance. One of our senior editors in New York, Margaret Carrigan, spoke to Heather Hubbs, the director of NADA, about the petition and the situation for galleries and workers in the city now that it's fast becoming an epicentre of the virus.
3: So on March 8th, Mayor Bill de Blasio established two relief programs for New York City's small businesses, uh, the New York City Employee Retention Grant Program, which covers 40% of payroll for two months, up to $27,000 and the New York City Small Business Continuity Fund, which provides a zero interest loan of up to $75,000 to kind of stymie profit losses. Uh, Ostensibly, galleries and nonprofits could potentially receive funds through both of these programs um, if they can demonstrate a 25% decrease in revenue. But there are concerns that you've identified that many, if not most of smaller galleries might not have the ability to take advantage of these initiatives. Why is that?
4: art galleries don't generate income through predictable stream uh, predictable streams of sales for for goods the way other retail stores bars and restaurants and that type of thing do they you know they generate their income through commercial invoices which makes their revenue irregular and dependent on a fluctuating stream of payments um so like they may have their books may look like they have money coming in but it, you know but it, it's it's not it's not it's not collectors take a long time to pay sometimes or you know right now maybe people are just because of the market not paying and it's it's just it's misleading and so they're they will have a loss and their loss might be way more than 25 percent, but they may not be in a position to prove that at this point in time and basically they need help now just like everybody else does.
3: I'm sure you've been in contact with a lot of galleries in the past couple of weeks, and especially when you've been putting this open letter together that you submitted to New York officials. What are the major concerns that they've identified right now, and what other measures are some of these galleries taking to protect their business in addition to pushing the city and state for more support?
4: I mean, the main concern is, like, how do they stay in business? I mean, they're, they're closed. They can't be in their galleries. They can't have the public... Um, coming in to the spaces they have you know there's the internet and they can try to you know do stuff that way but it's very difficult and so they they're you know they're, I think in the meantime they're just trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that there's no money coming in they can't generate money they still have these spaces that are that they have to pay right now they still are supposed to be paying rent on because there's been no kind of rent um stabilization put in place so they're they're advocating for for that um and universal health care that's another thing that they're now you know um advocating for I mean or alongside this sort of like rent stabilization I mean who, I, they can't pay for empty space and there's a bill that's been um recently put on the table by senator Michael Gennaris which is an act to suspend rent payments and certain mortgage payments for certain residential tenants and small business commercial tenants for 90 days in response to the outbreak of coronavirus. So, I mean, there's some, there's some gaps in that bill that we and the galleries are um, writing to the Senator about and other senators about. Um, I mean, we're calling basically in support of that, but, but we would like certain things, certain other people to be kind of included in that because the galleries. They have their spaces and they are their proprietors who are effective, But they also, uh, many of them have staff. Not, maybe some of them don't have a lot of staff, but they do have some staff. And then they have their artists. Their artists are not staff workers, but they are people that they support year round, and who are not on their payroll, who don't aren't going to get, you know, unemployment necessarily. Um, so there's the artists, and then there's also all the other kind of like third party contractors that they that they work with, like freelancers who help them. Build things in their spaces, and art handlers who help them install and move art around. Those people are—that's a whole other group of people who are employed by this community of of galleries, but they don't—they don't have full time. They're not on salary with anybody, or they're not—they weren't hourly with any company officially. They were kind of freelance. So, what happens to those people? That's a that's a, there's a large population of people, especially in New York City. I think uh, in that in that situation right now.
3: I'm curious about as you kind of put together this argument to get more funding for galleries, were there other cities or even other countries or other initiatives that you modeled it off of?
4: Well, we haven't officially created a fund for galleries. We started a petition on change.org um, raising awareness to to the issues that um, are at hand for our community and calling for support of that. I think it's a little misleading, because change.org asks like to support the petition by signing and then taking the extra step to donate or to spread the word, but the donation is actually goes to change.org. It goes to like them using that money. They say to promote the petition, so it's it's misleading. However, that said, it's been a long-term goal of Nadas to start some sort of emergency gallery fund, uh, you know, for the organization that. It's been on the table for many years, but, you know, kind of trying to figure out how to establish something like that and how to get the funding for it has been difficult. It's proven a challenge. I think now, like, it's easier to see the the reason why something like this is, is so important. You know, um, when Sandy hit New York, some galleries were able to get grants from the ADAA, the Art Dealers Association of America, because some of those bigger galleries that are part of ADAA, who you know were were not so largely affected because of either where their gallery was or just that their um, stability was so much greater than other people, and maybe their damage wasn't so bad or whatever it was. But the ADAA was able to quickly set up an emergency grant fund for galleries, and that some some of the younger galleries were able to apply and get cash fast from the ADAA. Um, this is so different because everyone in the sector is affected, even. You know, the, there's the, the luxury blue chip galleries that everybody is aware of, and they're I'm sure being affected in their own on their own level. It's going to be I'm sure devastating for them as well, but it, they will likely stay in business on some level. For these galleries, the younger ones, um, it's going to be a lot harder, a lot harder to, to to deal with this without some kind of support from from the government.
3: That brings up another question for me, which is, what are some of the longer-term implications of this business lockdown than just loss of revenue and possible closures? I mean, obviously, like you said, some of these smaller galleries aren't going to be able to weather the storm as well as the larger galleries, even if larger galleries are suffering losses. So if we're thinking about the gallery landscape, not just you know, in the immediate right now, which is what this is attempting to help them through. What does it look like a year, two years, three years down the line from an event like this?
4: I think there would be a lot lost in the in the the sort of vibrant art community that's a part of, that's it's a part of New York, in which New York seems to be quite proud of that it's, it's a deeply cultural city, and and the art community here is strong, and and people really go and look at art and appreciate it and support it. I don't know how anyone could afford to remain in a place that where they where they didn't have options to to show their work, and for galleries to sell it, and you know to be able to afford spaces in which they could promote it and show it and sell it. It's hard to imagine because it's always been such a part of New York City. But I don't know. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know if I have the answer to what that would look like. But I I really hope that I I don't have to see to see that happen. I hope that they'll wake up and and realize that the art world isn't just a luxury community there's a lot of people that are just like any other business and they're just kind of doing it because they love it and they're they're kind of month to month um um, because this is what they love doing and they love their artists and they want to support their artists and their families and and it you know on some level this stuff is is pretty personal um and it may not seem like that from the outside because i think the general you know most people May not know the, the the community as as intimately as as me. I'm been working in this field my entire life and working to uh, with NADA for um, since 2004. So I know it well and I understand the struggles deeply. And I understand that a lot of people may not see that, but you know I think it's time. I think it's time that 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 this gets acknowledged in some way. Um, you know, I, again I think this would require for it to be really like kind of mandated and on the books, it it, it would take a lot more effort than what's what's needed right now. And, you know, so it's like there's a whole other conversation that could be had about long term, like down the line, what could be done to prevent, you know, something so catastrophic as this to happen to this this community. And I think that there are things that could be done, but it's going to take a lot more work than just sort of like a cry for help during COVID.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I think that that is on a lot of people's minds right now as we face down a more, a very, you know, imminent and urgent threat like this, that in, in the wake of it, how do we want to essentially re-envision the landscape? And so I think it's important to keep talking around those kinds of points and what, what we want that to look like. Um, My final question for you is if the mayor or any of the officials you've reached out to have have been in contact since you've drafted the letter and gotten nearly 10,000 signatures on it.
4: We have not heard from the mayor. Um, we have uh, been reaching out uh, very recently to the state senators. Um, like everyone is kind of doing it collectively, and we've gotten some responses. Nothing, you know. I don't think that there's been any meetings set, but we have asked if there if we could have a virtual meeting with with them or some of them to explain our situation better and. As of the last time I looked at my email, we hadn't gotten any like you know I think they're obviously inundated, and we get well, you get emails you get those automatic responses saying like you know we'll we'll get we'll get in touch and you know if you if you need immediate assistance, do this, and if you want to schedule a meeting, do this, so like we're kind of just working through um all of those communications but i I've, I feel like we'll get we'll get something we'll see i mean we're we're hopeful that um, with enough people kind of crying out and and, and, and knocking on doors and, and um, making calls and stuff that we'll, we'll get somewhere.
3: Well, fingers crossed. And thank you so yeah. much for taking time to speak with us
4: today, Heather. Yeah, thank you.
0: You can sign Nada's petition at change.org. Now the UK finally entered a form of lockdown at the start of this week and of course museums and galleries closed after what many thought was a similarly long delay last week. AN, the Artists Information Company, an artist membership organisation in the UK, launched a survey to explore the scope of hardship-facing artists. Meanwhile, Arts Council England announced a package of £160 million emergency funding, which includes £20 million of financial support for artists, creative practitioners and freelancers, £90 million for the Arts Council's so-called National Portfolio Organisations, and £50 million for arts organisations that don't receive regular funding from Arts Council England. Julie Lomax is the CEO of AN and she joined me on the line from New Zealand where she's temporarily delayed by travel restrictions imposed by the New Zealand government due to the virus. Julie, before we talk about the situation in the UK, can you just tell us what AN, the artist information company, is?
5: AN originally started um, as an artist collective in Sunderland and the A and the N stands for artist newsletter. It was a 500 Per copy-per-month magazine that went out to artists. And the purpose of it was to provide useful information for artists about grants, studios, um, how to connect with other artists and um, opportunities for artists. We are now a professional body for artists and we have over 25,000 members. And we provide professional development advice, information and programmes for artists. Most importantly one of our programmes is a bursary programme where we provide around £200,000 a year to artists so that they can pursue professional development opportunities uh, relating to their practice.
0: It's it's the 40th anniversary of AN this year isn't it and is it fair to say that this is probably the worst crisis that, that you faced?
5: I have been with the company for just under two years and looking back on the history of the company, um, we have had a lot of ups and downs over the years and we've been able to respond very quickly for our members. But actually, this could probably be the worst crisis for artists, um, especially as Of course, they are losing income on a daily basis and we need to act quickly and fast on behalf of our members. We uh, had a number of 40th anniversary celebrations uh, that we were going to uh, do starting from September. But of course, now what we are in a good position to do is to uh, repurpose our resources, to make sure that our members are receiving advice, help and also support through this crisis.
0: Now, now you've done a survey. Can you tell us what you asked in that survey and, and, importantly, what artists are telling you?
5: So, we did the survey. I think it's very important to say that this survey went out on the 19th of March And we closed the survey on Tuesday, the 24th of March. So it was a very short period for our members to actually engage with the survey. However, we did have um, over 4,000 replies. And we asked them basically how it was affecting their practice and their income. Uh, the immediate impact, but we also asked them what they thought the long-term impact might be. Um, and so we looked at um, things such as uh, how, we, how it was affecting their income, uh, exhibition opportunities, travel, uh, selling work, their employment. Uh, most of our members are self-employed, commissions, residencies, Studios, um, the impact, obviously, of um, paying for a studio and not actually being able to go in there and make work and also research um, and study and grants and awards. So we asked about this, um, as I said, for the immediate and also the long term impact.
0: Right. And and and. In terms of what they're telling you, are you hearing repeatedly the same sort of things or are the problems very diverse and of different levels of complexity, if you like?
5: I think looking at the survey, and I think if we were to repeat this survey in three months' time, I would imagine that unless there are specific things that artists um, are able to access, and I can talk about that after I've talked about the survey... I think it will look the same. Um, and it is very worrying. So 93% of our respondents reported that they had um, that their practice and their career had been affected. Um, and only 3% of the respondents reported that there'd been no effects. And 82% of respondents said that they had upcoming work cancelled. I've been following social media. And one of the immediate things that came into my timeline on Twitter was one of our Artist Council members actually tweeted that in 24 hours they'd lost £8,000 in um, opportunities. Uh, This particular uh, member is a digital artist and does a lot of events in museums, and festivals so within a 24-hour period of social distancing coming into force he lost £8,000 and that may not seem so dramatic but actually if that's a 24-hour period and if and and the accumulative effects when you add in the possibly around 25,000 People losing that type of income, then it becomes quite serious. One of the big things that has come out of our survey is uh, artists are concerned about studios. So these are effectively their places of business. So they, uh, they are renting a space where they go and create and make work, probably on a daily basis. Um, at least most of their working week. Um, With the lockdown, of course, people are not able to go to their studios. So they're not able to make work in the same way. And they will have to adapt that. So there becomes a suspension of the creative process. And then also um, they're paying rent on their studios. So one of the things that we have agreed to take part in is to look at what packages could be available for studios um, up and down the country. So studio groups, studio organisations up and down the country to ensure that they are able to access some of the business incentives that other businesses are able to access. Because actually, as an artist, if you're not able to go to your studio and you're not able to create work or work through a creative process, and that is stalled for a number of months, then effectively, when you are able to go to your studio, you're really playing catch-up. And um, this is very brought into very sharp focus if you think about people who are working in different mediums such as craft, who then rely on selling their work regularly, Um, artists who are also working in other mediums such as photography. So studios is something that we um, are concerned about and those studio groups, a lot of whom are artist led they're not also. They're not always just the big studio groups that you and I might know of, such as Acme or Space Studios. And actually, both of those organisations provide a, a really great service, actually, to some of the smaller studio organisations. There is also. It's a very precarious sector as well, especially at, as I've said, as most of them are artist-led, and it's precarious because. Um, especially in the cities where rents are, have been rising and increasing um, and artists have been forced out of areas that they might normally have worked in through studios. Rising rents, um, precariousness of uh, leases um, also puts that sector into um, a very difficult position. Through this, and what we don't want to see is closures of studios, but we also want to make sure that studios are also able to pass on benefits such as rent holidays or other types of benefits um, to their occupiers as well, because that keeps that ecology running.
0: That's great and so let's go into the Arts Council announcement then there was a 160 million fund announced uh, yesterday by the Arts Council and I think the bit that seems to me is the most important in terms of your members is this idea that artists and creative Practitioners can apply for cash grants up to two thousand five hundred pounds from a pot of around twenty million. So, is that right? That's that's the sort of crucial development because it will be individual grants to to artists.
5: We very much welcome Arts Council's announcements this week, and they have directed their funding um, to have an immediate impact on individual artists. And what we would expect to see, although we don't have the detail yet, is very much a light touch uh, fund and application process that can get funding out to artists immediately.
0: So when you say light touch, what do you mean that basically it's they are able to give these grants to artists and not say we insist that you do X with this amount of money?
5: Yes, that's absolutely right. So we would expect also the application form to be um, very simple and easy to fill in. And also that there would be um, quick decision-making processes. And Arts Council uh, England does have the capacity to do that. And as I've said, we very much welcome um, the new fund.
0: Uh- There are artists or communities of artists that are not helped by the Arts Council announcement. I'm thinking there was some some aspect of it which was in terms of artists who have already received public funding. There will be many artists out there that have not had public funding.
5: I think at the moment when I looked at the announcement, I think that's um, a grey area, and I think it will become very much clearer once they publish the criteria and the guidelines. I can't really speculate until we see the um criterion guidelines.
0: And do you have a sense of when those guidelines will be uh, published because I think that seems to me to be absolutely crucial. You've talked about how urgent this is that people are actively lost money right now. Do you get the sense that 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 you know there's there is a pace about this process which will be able to help artists very quickly?
5: Absolutely. It's extraordinarily fast paced. And I think, it. as I said, we welcome um, the new fund, but also the speed at which Arts Council has been able to put it together. And on the website, the guidance will be available on the 30th of March. So a very short time uh, indeed.
0: Great. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining us today and I hope the, the situation improves and the artists are looked after over the coming days. Thanks very much for joining us.
5: Thank you, Ben. It's been great to speak to you today and I am very much hoping that this podcast will get out um, key messages to many people across the sector.
0: join a.n the artist's information company you can visit a-n.co.uk and you can also find out more about the arts council's emergency funding at artscouncil.org.uk and that's it for this week you can subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage, and if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast please do so and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it The producers of the podcast are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David's also our editing whiz. Thanks to Catherine, Julie, Zoe, Maggie and Heather, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when our lonely work is being chosen by the artist Sean Scully. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.